Bringing Light to the World by Jeremy Nadler. This audio recording is accompanied by a text with illustrations, which is available on the Temenos website. The Metaphysics of Light Of all the things that we are aware of in the physical world, light is the least thing-like. It seems to hover between the physical and spiritual orders of being. We can't touch, smell, taste or hear it, and many have doubted that we can even see it, because it always directs our gaze away from itself, towards what it illumines. And this is because it is a necessary condition for us to be able to perceive everything else in the world. In this respect, we can feel the gesture of light to be entirely selfless. It dedicates itself to illuminating other things, but not only illuminating them, for through its benevolent presence, plants grow, birds sing, and human beings rejoice. In this benevolent selflessness of light, through which all of creation is gifted with life, we sense an intrinsic moral quality. We can feel that light in its purity conveys to us an experience of unsullied goodness. According to Plato, such a feeling would be entirely justified. In the Republic, he tells us that the light we experience with our senses has its originating source in the inherently luminous principle of goodness, which he calls the idea of the good. Just as in Greek mythology the sun god Helios was the child of a more interior deity named Hyperion, so Plato describes the physical sun as the child or offspring of the idea of the good. In declaring the idea of the good to be the spiritual origin and progenitor of light, Plato was pointing to a more profound truth concealed in the images of ancient myth. According to Plato, we benefit from the inherent luminosity of the idea of the good, not just in our experience of physical light, but also when we experience the illuminating power of thought, especially when our thinking activity is deepened to contemplative insight, or noesis. Then it enables us to know what is true, and to distinguish the true from the false and illusory. It enables us to perceive the difference between what is right and what is wrong, and again, to recognise what is beautiful and how beauty differs from ugliness. In other words, our ability to gain true knowledge, to develop a reliable moral orientation in life, and a spiritually refined aesthetic sense, requires that we enter into an inner relationship with this luminous principle of goodness. In Plato's conception, the idea of the good is the spiritual sun that both inwardly enlightens human consciousness and is also the originating source of the light we experience outwardly in the sense world. In the early centuries of Christian metaphysical reflection, this view of light was widely upheld. A good example can be found in the writings of Dionysius the Areopagite, who lived in the 5th and 6th centuries. He said, Light 
comes from the good, and light is an image of this archetypal good. Thus the good is also praised by the name light, just as an archetype is revealed in its image. For Dionysius, the archetypal spiritual essence is revealed in its image. The image, in Greek icon, is not to be understood simply as a representation or as a likeness, but rather as the outermost expression of the archetype, which manifests through it. In physical light, therefore, we meet the outermost manifestation of the principle of goodness. This understanding of the status of physical light rests to a large extent on the relationship that was believed to exist between image and archetype, and this understanding continued into the Middle Ages. In Latin, the word imago does not simply mean a representation of something else, but rather that it shares or participates in the essence of the original. So, when St Thomas Aquinas speaks of sense-perceptible light as being an image of spiritual light, we are dealing neither with metaphor nor simile, but rather with a real connection between these two manifestations of light, outer and inner. For Aquinas, the light of our understanding is just as truly light as the light that illuminates physical objects and gives life to plants. For both kinds of light originate from the same source. It is important for us to grasp the enormous implications of this perspective. For it asks us to stretch our conception of light in an inward direction and to understand that the light we experience in the sense-perceptible world belongs to the outermost edge of a spectrum of qualitative, sorry, qualitative degrees of light. And here is a little note I want to insert. We're considering here a vertical and qualitatively differentiated spectrum in contrast to the electromagnetic spectrum, which is horizontal, quantitatively determined and, and therefore measurable. What we experience as belonging to the outer world is therefore inwardly connected to what occurs within human consciousness. And this inner co connection consists in the fact that what is illuminated in the sense-perceptible world by physical light receives a second illumination within human consciousness when we grasp the archetypal idea or organising principle that constitutes its essence. This thought was widely accepted during the medieval period, due as much to the influence of Aristotle as to Plato. In his treatise on physics, Aristotle declared that the path of knowledge lies from that which is more immediately accessible to the senses to that which is intrinsically more luminous. By this, he meant the ideas or forms of the things that we perceive with our senses when we grasp them in thought. Through grasping them in thought, we bring to them a second illumination through our participation in the universal creative light of the divine mind 
that sustains them in existence. What Plato conceived as the idea of the good, Aristotle understood to be a cosmic consciousness, not so much an idea as the thinking activity of the divine mind. It is this that we participate in when we grasp the essences of things with our thinking, and thereby the object illumined by our thinking achieves a certain completion by being returned through us to its spiritual principle. This understanding of how human consciousness imparts to things a second illumination was taken up in the Middle Ages by both Aquinas and Meister Eckhart, amongst others, who each had a strong awareness of the significance of human knowing for the cosmos. The capacity of human beings to grasp in thought the archetypal spiritual principle of things was understood as being due to a light inherent in the human mind which derived from the universal light emanating from the divine mind. It belongs to the very nature of the human mind that it is able to bring this inherent light of understanding to the world, thereby endowing the world with meaning. The illuminating power of thought which enables us to apprehend meaning and to uncover truth was referred to in the medieval period as the natural light or lumen naturae of the mind. It is natural because it belongs to us as our birthright, but we nevertheless still have to work at it if we are to refine it into an instrument of knowledge and insight. Depending on how successful we are in this activity of refinement, the natural light of the mind can bring us into a more conscious relationship with the divine source of light. Beyond the natural light of the mind, a further degree of inner light was also held to be accessible to human experience, and this was referred to as the light of grace, lumen gratiae. It does not belong to us as our birthright, in the way that the natural light of the mind does, but it is a gift that is bestowed on us by the spiritual world, and whether we are able to receive it depends greatly on how open our hearts are. By the word heart was meant, in the writings of the Church Fathers, something both broader and deeper than personal feeling or sentiment. It is the sacred centre of the human soul. It is where our conscience dwells. It is the holy of holies within us, our point of contact with the divine. So, if we are to be able to work consciously with the light of grace, it is this heart centre that we need to be grounded in. This requires the cultivation of inner stillness and the practice of bringing ourselves back to the centre. Only then can we recognise that what flows into us by way of intuition, inspiration and inner prompting is a gift which the conscious mind cannot rightly claim as originating in itself, but issues from a transpersonal source to which due thanks should be given 
In this way, we cultivate a dialogue between ourselves and a higher order of reality that lies beyond the boundaries within which we tend to locate the self. Aquinas explains that the meaning of the word grace, in Latin gratia, is double, for it signifies not only a gift or favour bestowed on us, freely given or gratis, but also our gratitude for it, as for example in the grace of thanksgiving before a meal. These two meanings belong together. It is because we recognise that we have received a gift, that we respond with gratitude, and this response of gratitude is a response of the whole heart, embracing intellect, emotions and will. To live in gratitude and thanksgiving is what enables this interior light of grace to flow more freely into us and through us into the world. In his book, Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer, the Benedictine monk, Brother David Standel Rust, points out that to live prayerfully, in focused attentiveness and openness to spirit, is also to live gratefully. And through gratitude and thanksgiving, the light of grace finds a pathway into us and through us into the world. Cultivating gratitude and living prayerfully are the foundations for opening ourselves to this interior light of grace and, as it were, making a space for it to shine within us and from us. Furthermore, the degree to which the light of grace is able to find a home within us is also closely aligned with the degree of our faith, hope and love. Gratitude and prayerfulness could be thought of as the basis for nurturing these three so-called theological virtues, which might better be referred to as divine energies. For they bring, bring us into a, a deeper relationship with the divine. They should be thought of as transcendent, luminous powers that lift our consciousness above the merely human level of functioning to a much more purposeful and awake mode of being. The theological virtues are resources of inner strength which Aquinas describes as literally surpassing human nature, for through them we are enabled to participate in the divine order of being. We could think of them as empowering us with the possibility of self-transcendence. They allow us, through rising above ourselves, to fulfil our deepest human potential. Each of them are precious gifts, which most of us neglect terribly and scarcely give a thought to, but which, if we work consistently with them, have the power to help us towards standing on firm spiritual ground. The philosopher Joseph Pieper, in his study of the theological virtues, says the following concerning how we should regard them. Theological virtue 
is an ennobling of man's nature that entirely surpasses what he can be of himself. Theological virtue is the steadfast orientation toward a fulfilment and a beatitude that are not owed to natural man. Theological virtue is the utmost degree of a supernatural potentiality for being. This supernatural potentiality for being is grounded in a real, grace-filled participation in the divine nature which comes to man through Christ. Each of the three theological virtues should be understood as empowering us to transform a fundamental aspect of our soul life so it becomes spiritually illumined. And in being so illumined, it becomes a portal through which the light of grace can stream into the world. For it is the nature of light to shine and spread itself outwards. In the Gospel of St. Thomas, one of the sayings of Christ is, There is a light within a man of light. And he lights up the whole world. If he does not shine, there is darkness. In dark times, the three theological virtues can be thought of as three ways of lighting up the world. Faith. In his letter to the Hebrews, St. Paul defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. For Paul, there is no doubt that, and I'm going to quote here, what is seen is made out of that which is unseen, end of quote. Through faith, we turn towards that which we do not perceive with our senses, intuiting that it is in the non-sensory realm that we must locate the originating cause of what occurs in the sensory realm. This applies in the first place to the phenomena experienced by sense perception, which, according to traditional metaphysics, are not ultimately caused by other sense perceptible phenomena, but rather arise out of the realm of archetypes, which we cannot perceive with our senses. It also applies to occurrences in life through which invisible forces of karma, destiny and providence are at work. There is, in other words, a spiritual order of being that lies behind or within the sensory world, and it is towards this spiritual order of existence that faith directs our attention. Faith is often confused with belief, belief in a worldview, a political ideology, or a religious creed. But the gestures of belief and faith are quite different from each other. The gesture of belief is one of closing the mind down as it attaches itself to a dogma, whereas the gesture of faith is a gesture of openness to a realm of being, the existence of which we have an intimation, but which we do not fully comprehend, and which we seek 
to relate to more closely. Dante describes faith as an intention, in, in Italian, intenza, by which he means a specific directedness of the mind towards the spiritual. Elaborating on Paul's definition of faith as the substance of things hoped for, Dante says, Faith is substance by intention. In other words, that towards which faith reaches out is invested with substantive reality precisely by faith's act of reaching out towards it. The unseen takes on more substantive form for us through our faith. So through our intention of reaching out towards it, the unmanifest world is able to clothe itself in substantiality. Faith provides the meeting place between the world of spirit and human consciousness, directed towards knowledge of that which is inherently imperceptible to the senses. Does faith then simply deal in illusions? No, it is rather that different rules apply when we are relating to the world of spirit. The poet Rumi tells the following wonderful story. One night, a certain devotee was praying aloud when Satan appeared to him and said, How long will you cry, O oh God? Be quiet, for you will get no answer. The devotee hung his head in silence. After a little while, he had a vision of the prophet Khidir, who said to him, Ah, oh, why have you stopped calling on God? He replied, Because the answer, here I am, did not come. Khidir said, God has ordered me to come to you and say this. Was it not I that summoned you to do to service? Did not I make you busy with my name? Your calling, O oh God, was my here I am. Your yearning pain was my messenger to you. I was the cause of all those tears and cries and supplications, and I gave them wings. The most striking thing about this story is the paradox that it is just when the devotee's faith fails him that the spiritual world responds and reveals to him the deeper truth of how faith actually works. God's message to the devotee is, your calling O oh God, was my here I am. This is not to say that the devotee has blindly persisted in pursuing an illusion, but rather that through his persistent efforts, the object of his devotion draws ever closer to his consciousness. The test of faith always lies within each person's experience of holding out at the very edge of their mind's capacity to know, 
and not surrendering to the doubts that can come crowding in to undermine their intention. This is an effort of devotion, which involves not just the mind and will, but also the imagination. Faith requires the courage to imagine what we cannot directly perceive. This too is part of its substance, for it is by means of the imagination that we orientate ourselves towards the unseen reality of the world of spirit, and it is likewise through the imagination that the unseen can take on form and reveal itself to us. In his letter to the Hebrews, Paul mentions several Old Testament figures whom he regards as good exemplars of faith. The underlying quality they share is their unwavering trust in the benevolent presence of the divine. Referring to Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, he says, that's Paul says, that, quote, he persevered as if seeing the one who is invisible, unquote. We'll just read that again. He persevered as if seeing the one who is invisible. We are to understand that even though he did not see the one who is invisible, he persevered as if he did. Again, this might seem like the deliberate cultivation of an illusion, but it is actually pointing to something else that we are called upon to practice in order to anchor ourselves in a greater truth. And this is that we develop an unshakable trust in our own innate sense of the reality of the spiritual order of existence and the recognition of, as Plato put it, the messages handed down to us from a divine source. Faith should best be understood as akin to the Platonic anamnesis or remembrance of a deeper knowledge that we already possess because it is lodged in our own spiritual experience, even though it may not be as readily accessible to us as the experience of what is immediately sense-perceptible. According to Rudolf Steiner, faith is not, after all, based on our unknowing, but on our knowing. Quote, Knowledge is the only foundation of faith. In our soul, we must have what enables us to look towards the supersensible world and make it possible for us to turn all our thoughts and conceptions in that direction. Unquote. If it were just a surrender to wishful thinking, then it would not be faith. The foundation of faith is in the end not our lack of knowledge, but rather our recognising that we actually know much more than we dare to admit. Faith might then be characterised as knowledge that is on the way to becoming fully conscious experience. 
hope. Just as faith is not the same as belief, so hope is not the same as the shapeless optimism that is conveyed by phrases like being hopeful that things will turn out for the best. Neither is it the same as the vague wish that we so often express regarding someone else's well-being or about meeting them at some unspecified time in the future. Hope is more accurately described as an active response to the circumstances that confront us, which involves taking positive steps to bring about the change that we long for. True hope is always goal-oriented. It galvanises us to clearly visualise in our imagination what we seek to achieve, and proactively to do what we can to bring it about, even if the forces opposing us seem insuperable and our actions apparently ineffective. Difficulty of achievement is always part of hope, for it is the virtue we draw on in times of trouble. According to Aquinas, hope denotes a movement or a stretching forth of desire towards a good that is difficult to achieve. Hope, then, involves actively defending and sustaining the vision that we want to realise, with the result that we free ourselves from the spell of negativity and despair that can so easily paralyse us in the face of adversity. In William Blake's Jerusalem, the character Loss, who represents the creative imagination, does not give up, despite being overshadowed by his spectre or demon of negation. Blake's tribute to loss is that he kept the divine vision in time of trouble. Hope infuses our mood with a defiant positivity and the strength to overcome our personal sense of disempowerment so that we don't allow ourselves to be deterred by the difficulties, both inner and outer, that stand between us and the realisation of our most deeply held aims. The more insurmountable these difficulties seem, the more this theological virtue comes into its own. For it is just when we feel trapped, overwhelmed, or defeated by the obstacles we are facing, and the seeming impossibility of the situation we are in, that we must summon up hope. Like faith, Hope dwells at the threshold where we come up against the limits of our powers and must call on inner resources that actually lie beyond these limits. Through hope, we access a strength of purpose from the transpersonal level, which imbues us with a new energy that raises us above ourselves. Aquinas saw hope as a turning of the heart towards the spiritual order of existence, just as surrendering to despair is a turning away from it, and for that reason he regarded despair as a sin. Hope is a theological virtue because it opens the heart to the uplifting energies 
that are sourced in the divine. For hope affirms that what may be impossible for human beings is nevertheless possible for God, as the angel Gabriel says. If we can open ourselves to receive the help that flows towards us from the spiritual world in the form of inspiration, guidance and enthusiasm, then we can become beacons of hope, radiating light of encouragement to others. Like each of the theological virtues, hope helps to promote us towards the fulfilment of our human potential, which is to live in a more conscious union of companionship with the divine presence within the soul. Insofar as we are able to live in hope, we regain our orientation towards becoming what humanly we should be, whereas insofar as we succumb to the darkness of despair, we lose our connection with the luminous divine source, and so drift away from our own foundations. All religions know of the divine companion who is the inward source of hope. In the Bhagavad Gita it is the figure of Krishna. In the Sufi tradition it is referred to as the inner friend of the soul. In Christianity this inner companion is Christ. Jung discusses the significance of the dawning awareness of this greater figure who dwells within us in his essay concerning rebirth, where he says, This new awareness can be experienced as an inner birth. What is born inwardly is the hidden immortal within the mortal human being, who is that other person, here I'm quoting him, that other person who we are, I beg your pardon, I quote that again, that other person who we also are and yet can never attain completely. This bringing to birth of something new, a new spiritual impulse, is implicit in hope. On the archetypal level, hope's symbolic image is of the mother in labour, giving birth to the spiritual child. Hope may be bestowed upon us as a grace, but like faith, it does not come to us without much striving on our part. Essential to the image of the birth of the spiritual child are the forces of opposition that gather to prevent the child from being born. This powerful image can be found in ancient Egyptian esoteric texts such as the Book of What is in the Underworld, or the Amdwat, where the rebirth of the solar principle in the dark underworld is opposed by the cosmic serpent, Apophis. It is also found in the ancient Greek story of the birth of the solar god Apollo, whose mother Leto is pursued by the serpent Python, and in the Christian tradition the book of Revelation presents the picture of the celestial mother and her solar child, menaced by a seven-headed dragon. Whenever we face difficulty, opposition and adversity, 
we should look towards what new spiritual impulse is seeking to be born. This archetypal image of the nature of hope has been well expressed by Patriarch Athenagoras I of Constantinople in the following words. The world now stands at a moment when all values are being put to the test. Scientific discoveries and advancing technology, space travel, rapid social change, spiritual upheaval, create a confusion never known before. And in this confusion we are often tempted to lose heart. But we must not give in to this temptation, even for an instant, or abandon ourselves to despair. The state of the world is that of childbirth, and childbirth is always accompanied by hope. We contemplate the present situation with immense Christian hope and a deep awareness of our responsibility for the kind of world which will emerge from this childbirth. Patriarch Athenagoras could have made this statement yesterday, but in fact, he spoke these words in 1969. The image of the spiritual child is an eternal image, radiating the light of hope. It conveys to us the need to take up both the labour of bringing to birth and of protecting and nurturing the spiritual impulse that brings light in dark times. Love Just as we misunderstand the meaning of faith, if we confuse it with dogmatic adherence to a belief in some ideology or creed, and we misunderstand the meaning of hope, if we think of it as nothing more than a vague wish, that things will turn out for the best. So we need also to guard against misunderstanding the theological virtue of love. It should not be confused with feelings of affection or sentimental attachment, or equally with the experience of passionate desire. Love is a much overused word and covers a great many different meanings and nuances of meaning. To focus on the theological virtue of love is not to claim that this is the only true meaning of love, as if other forms of love should be disparaged or ignored. It is simply that love as a theological virtue has a very specific meaning that we need to be clear about. When St Paul spoke of love, describing its qualities in his famous letter to the Corinthians, love is patient and kind, love is not jealous or boastful, is not arrogant or rude, and so on. The word he used was the Greek word agape. In Latin, agape translates as caritas. Unfortunately, this can be another source of misunderstanding because caritas is often translated as charity. If by charity we understand giving money to those in need, then this would be far too narrow 
and interpretation of the theological virtue of love. As we saw earlier, theological virtues should be thought of as divine energies that empower us with the possibility of self-transcendence and allow us, through rising above ourselves, to fulfil our deepest potential. In Paul's letter, one feels his description of love is a description of the perfected human being who, through the empowerment of love, has overcome all tendencies to egotism and is dedicated to the pursuit of the good. His letter goes on. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, has faith in all things, has hope in all things, endures all things. The love of Caritas is a divinizing power which raises us above the merely human, promoting us towards the realisation of that potential we bear within ourselves, which, as Aquinas says, surpasses our human nature and enables us to become a partaker of the divine nature. One of its most important characteristics is reaching out beyond self-centred attachments, fears and desires, in order to bring to another being, human or non-human, the warmth of our attention and understanding. It involves setting aside our sense of separateness from others, as we embrace the other as part of ourselves, and likewise see ourselves as part of them. A wise monk has called this expansion of the sense of self the recognition of our inter-being, because in reality no being exists in isolation. The concept of inter-being calls on us to acknowledge a complete interdependence of all beings on each other, and to see that our experience of separateness from others is really an illusion. The gateway to this experience is imaginative sympathy, when our heart opens to another's suffering and we feel their pain as if it were our own. Like each of the theological virtues, love draws on the imagination. If faith draws on the imagination as a way of orienting ourselves towards the unseen world of spirit, and hope draws on the imagination to envision conditions quite different from those that surround us in our adversity, then love draws on imaginative sympathy for another being's suffering. This precious ability to actively imagine ourselves into another's experience leads to an awakening of the heart the sympathetic entering into the suffering of another and feeling it as if it were one's own is the compassion, which means literally suffering with, 
that is the bedrock of love. It is perhaps the greatest conundrum of all the world's conundrums, that love, which is born out of compassion, arises in us because the world is so steeped in suffering. Oscar Wilde grappled with this conundrum in his essay De Profundis, written when he was in prison, and came to the conclusion that the very meaning of suffering lies in its giving rise to love. I quote, Now it seems to me that love of some kind is the only possible explanation of the extraordinary amount of suffering that there is in the world. I cannot conceive any other explanation. I am convinced that there is no other, and that if the worlds have indeed, as I have said, been built out of sorrow, it has been by the hands of love, because in no other way could the soul of man, for whom the worlds are made, reach the full stature of its perfection. Wilde perceived that the full stature of human perfection can only be achieved through a love based on compassion. Just as hope arises in the face of seemingly insurmountable difficulty, so love arises in response to the suffering of the world. For the love of Caritas springs from the awakened, compassionate heart. In Latin, the word for compassion is misericordia, which means literally tenderness of heart. Compassion is a softening of the heart that allows us to identify with another's distress and to feel a kinship with them that spurs us to do what we can to help them. Whereas the weight of compassion rests in feeling with and for another's distress, Aquinas surprises us in insisting that love is not a disposition of the feelings, but a disposition of the will. This is because, as we previously saw, the heart is not just the centre of feeling, but is also the locus of our most interior thoughts and the spring of our deepest resolves. And so for Aquinas, love is not just something we feel, but is an activity we engage in with both understanding and fullness of intent. Love is the work of valuing, affirming, and devoting ourselves to the interests and well-being of others. It is work because it demands constant effort to overcome our own self-centeredness and egotism, for which we need to draw on a power that lies beyond the ego. That is when we may experience the reality of the suprapersonal power of grace, for without it we're not likely to get very far. Through love, as with the other theological virtues, we have to reach across the threshold of our own limitations towards the transpersonal spiritual order of existence. 
in Christian terms, this reaching across the threshold, is towards the indwelling, hidden immortal, or Christ, who resides in the innermost sanctuary of the human soul. But where love differs from hope is in its awakened consciousness of Christ's presence, not only in ourselves, but also in every human being who bears the divine image. And furthermore, love perceives that every creature with whom we share the planet also harbours the divine presence. We may therefore think of the theological virtue of love as a third way that we can bring light to the world. While Plato conceived the source of this light to be the idea of the good, and Aristotle as the divine mind, from the Christian perspective, it is the being of love, who is the interior sun or light of the world, who has also taken up residence within the human heart. As the sun gives light, says Aquinas, so is love instilled and preserved in us by God. According to Aquinas, this leads to an enlargement of our hearts, as the indwelling Christ becomes the standard and model, the source and instigator of our resolves and our deeds. There is then a source of light within us which we can open our hearts to receive and nurture. Each of the theological virtues of faith, hope and love can become a portal through which this light can shine within us and emanate from us, illumining both our own lives and those of other beings, both human and non-human, whose existence we touch. As this essay has drawn greatly on Aquinas's elucidation of the theological virtues, it seems fitting to conclude by reflecting on a remarkable portrait of him by Benozzo Gozzoli, The Triumph of St Thomas Aquinas, painted in 1471. It shows Aquinas, seated in the centre of the picture, with Aristotle to one side of him and Plato to the other, while at his feet lies Averroes, whose philosophy Aquinas refuted during his lifetime. Above this scene, Christ appears like Helios within the orb of a cosmic sun, but now surrounded by angels, and with evangelists and saints kneeling before him. What draws our attention most strongly, however, is a second golden sun shining in the region of Aquinas's heart. The artist, in this way, presents us with an image of Aquinas as the enlightened human being, whose heart, having been enlarged by the virtues of faith, hope and love, radiates the divine light of grace into the world.